your Bibles to Matthew 21. In Matthew 21, in the last week of the life of Christ, and one of Jesus' only two miracles in and around Jerusalem in the Gospel of Matthew. In the Gospel of Matthew, in verse 14, he healed the blind, the lame, in the temple. But here in verse 18, now in the morning, when he was returning to the city, he became hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, no longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Seeing this, his disciples were amazed and asked, how did this fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what is done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Now this is, as we've stated in Matthew, and I don't mean all the Gospels, but in Matthew, the only miracle outside of that miracle mentioned in verse 14, the only miracles he does in or around Jerusalem. But I want to tell you what catches more people's attention about that than, about this than that. And that is the fact, it is the only miracle in the Gospels that is purely destructive. As Jesus goes to the city, he is hungry. One other time in Matthew that he's been pictured as hungry. And that was in Matthew 4 when he was hungry and tempted to turn the stones to bread. But there he quoted scripture from Deuteronomy 8. It is written, man shall, live, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. This is a much different response. Jesus curses the fig tree and said, no longer will you eat any food Anyone, any, eat any fruit from you. And at once, the fig tree withers. I'll tell you what makes it even more confusing. Is Mark has the interesting note in Mark 11 and verse 13. That it was not the season for figs. It's not fig season. Some of you would know the name. Bertrand Russell, an unbeliever of a generation gone by. He lived from about 1872 to 1970. He wrote a book, Why I Am Not a Christian. He said, 
of this particular account, it is a very curious story. It was not even the right time for figs, and really no one could blame the tree. I cannot feel that either in matters of wisdom or history that Christ stands quite as high as some other people in history. I think I should put Buddha and Socrates above him. Now, if someone said that to you, how would you respond? If someone used this to question the goodness of Jesus, what would you say? What would you respond? How would you respond to that? One of the things that is interesting, we've already pointed out that it's not the season for figs. Jesus sometimes knew people's minds and knew people's hearts. The Bible tells us he knew what was in man. In John 2, verses 24 and 25, Jesus said to his disciples in John 6, verses 70 and 71, that one of you is a devil. And he knew that he was speaking of Judas, and he knew from the beginning that Judas was going to betray him. Jesus knew what the crowd was thinking when he pronounced the man's sins forgiven in Matthew 8 and verse 4. Jesus knew that. Only God knows what is in the hearts of men. 1 Kings 8 and verse 39. Only God knows that. Only God knows that and Jesus could read the thoughts of man and yet in this instance Jesus does not only know, he does not only, dis it, it seems like he's not displaying omniscience, it seems like in this case he doesn't even have common knowledge of big season. Now the question again is why? Is that really the situation? Or is something going on? Before I mention that this miracle appears in Matthew and it appears in Mark. It appears in Mark 11. And I'll tell you what's interesting in Mark 11. In Mark 11, in verses 12 through 14, the Bible has Jesus cursing the fig tree. And then in verses 20 through 26, if you follow that closely, there's a gap. In verses 20 through 26, the disciples walk by and are astonished at how quickly the fig tree withers. In the Gospel of Mark, between the divided up account of the cursing of the fig tree, there is the cleansing of the temple in verses in Mark 11, verses 15 through 19. We have tried to say quite frequently that you can understand to some degree every gospel account by what goes before it and what goes after it. The fact that this account surrounds the cleansing of the temple is significant. And what it shows us is Jesus is coming to the tree. His coming to the tree is an enacted parable. It is a sign act like what is done in many of the prophets. He is showing something more profound. This is not 
Jesus not actually knowing that the fig tree was not going to have any figs on it. That's not what's going on. He is acting out a parable. He's giving a demonstration. Now, the sign acts of the prophets. We're going to use this background to help understand what Jesus is doing. Nine times in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah does sign acts. Eight times in the book of Ezekiel. It's most common in the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They do sign acts. Now, these sign acts... God gives the prophet a command. I ask you to turn your Bibles, if you would, to Jeremiah 13. Turn your Bibles here and let's look at this from this context. I have eight or nine pages on the Synax of the prophets. If you would like that, send me an email and I'd be glad to send that to you. If you want to look at that and examine some of these Old Testament cases in more detail. But what happens in these sign acts is God gives the prophet a command in verse 1. Thus the Lord said to me, go and buy for yourself a linen waistband and put it around your waist and do not put it in water. Then you have the prophet being obedient to the command. In verse 2, So I bought the waistband in accordance with the word of the Lord and put it around my waist. Now often, the very word of the commandment given by God is used in describing the prophet's actions to emphasize the importance of obedience. And the text will continue to shift back between command and obedience. In verse 3 and 4, the Lord speaks. The word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, Take a waistband that you have brought, which is around your waist, and arise and go to the Euphrates and hide it there in the crevice of the rock. And so in verse 5, we see his obedience described. I went and hid it in the Euphrates as the Lord had commanded. In verse 6, the Lord gives another command. It came about after many days that the Lord said to me, Go to the Euphrates, take from there the waistband which I have commanded you to hide there. And then I went to the Euphrates and dug and I took the waistband from the place where I had hidden it. And lo, the waistband was ruined. It was totally worthless. And then, what does it mean? What does it mean? Now, not every time do we see all three details. The reason I've chosen this one is because you see all these three spells. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Thus says the Lord, just so I will destroy the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This wicked people who refuse to listen to my words 
who walked in the stubbornness of their heart and have gone after their own gods to serve them and bow down to them, let them be just like this waistband, which is totally worthless. For as the waistband clings to the waist of a man, so I have made the whole house of Israel and the whole household of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be a people for for renown, for praise, and for glory. But they did not listen. So God tells the prophet, God tells Jeremiah, take a waistband, go and hide it. He goes and hides it, and at some point in the future, God says, go look for it again, and it's totally worthless, and that is a picture of the people. Now, that may seem like a bizarre teaching method. This was the ultimate visual aid. Was the ultimate visual aid. I would suggest the reason that it happens. It conveys God's truth in a very simple way. It conveys it in a simple way. As he goes, he takes this loincloth, he goes and hides it, he, he finds it again, he sees that it is worthless, he sees that it is good for nothing. That conveys the truth about this people's sins have made them the same. And it conveys truth in memorable ways. Ways that are hard to forget. And it conveys truth by words and not just by deeds. When Jesus is entering Jerusalem, he sees a fig tree that looks like its leaves are everywhere. It looks like a fig tree would look during the big season. He goes to this tree. He doesn't find any fruit. He curses the tree. No one will ever eat figs from this tree. As a result of that curse, the fig tree withers. Jesus is dramatically illustrating a truth about this nation, about the Jewish nation. This is not a parallel passage. This is a parable, but it teaches the same message. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Luke 13. Luke 13, verses 6 through 9. He began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which he planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. 
Why does it use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. Now, Jesus is in his last week of ministry. The final time has come. He has come to the temple and he has seen the buying and selling. And he's driven out the money changers from the temple. He's driven it out. He says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. But you have made it a robber's den. And then right after this, he curses the fig tree, illustrating that the nation that God has carefully planted and carefully cared for all these years should have borne fruit but they don't bear fruit they don't have any fruit it is a parable of judgment against the Jewish nation listen to what these verses say Hosea 9 Verse 10. I have found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season. But they came to Belpeor and devoted themselves to shame. And they became as detestable as that which they loved. He comes... To Bel, he come, he finds Israel as a first ripe fig, but they have defiled themselves. In Micah 7, in verse 1, Woe is me, for I am like the fruit pickers, like the grape gatherers. There is not a cluster of grapes to eat, or the first ripe fig which I crave. And then in Jeremiah 8, in verse 13, I will surely snatch them away, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine, no figs on the fig tree, and the leaf shall wither, and what shall I and what I have given them shall pass away. Now, if you look at each of those passages in context, they are dealing with judgment on Israel or judgment on Judah, and this picture of a fig tree is used. Jesus is acting out these passages to show that he has come to the tree, he has come to this careful, this plant that God has carefully planted, and it is born no fruit. All through the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has talked about the importance of fruit. In Matthew 3, as John the Baptist was preaching in Matthew 3, verses 8 through 10, he said, Bring forth fruit worthy of repentance. Think not to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. If they are going to be the children of Abraham, they have to bring forth fruit to demonstrate that. 
In Matthew chapter 7, in verses 16 through 20, the Bible talks about a tree is known by its fruits. One type of tree doesn't produce another type of fruit. A good tree brings good fruit and an evil tree brings evil fruit. A tree is known by its fruit. This tree of Judaism was known for the fact And the word that is sown in Matthew 13, some of it falls by the wayside and doesn't grow. Some of it falls in the rocky soil and doesn't grow. And some of it falls in the thorn soil and the thorns choke its life and it doesn't grow. But the seed that is sown in the good soil bears fruit. And some produce 30 times, some 60 times, some 100 times the amount. The necessity of fruit bearing is emphasized. And Jesus today is coming to the Avon church and he's looking for fruit. Does he find it? He didn't find it in the temple. And Jesus is coming to your house and your life. In John 15, any vine that bears fruit is pruned and strengthened that it may bear more fruit, but the branch that doesn't bear fruit is cut down. What fruit is Jesus finding in us? The importance, the necessity of fruit bearing. But the disciples are astonished. How quickly has this tree withered? How quickly has the tree withered? And Jesus says, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what's done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken and cast to the sea, it will happen for you. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. It is interesting here that bearing fruit is connected with faith and prayer. It's connected with faith and prayer in this context. If you have faith, and then he states the negative. If you have faith, then do not doubt. 
Do you remember the passage in Romans 11? Which was talking about the relationship between Jewish and Gentile believers. And telling the Gentile believers not to be arrogant against the branch. Against the Jewish root of the plant. Not to be arrogant against them. But he makes this statement in that context. In that agricultural picture of his people. He says in Romans 11 verse 20. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. Now if a branch is going to be fruitful. If a fig tree is going to be fruitful. It's going to have to believe because in this particular case, the branches were broken off for their unbelief. But he said, you stand by your faith. Romans 11 and verse 20. And so once again, the picture of the tree standing, the picture of the the tree bearing fruit is tied to faith. It is tied to faith. It is tied to prayer. Tied to prayer. Now, here we said, here the text says, all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. You know that expression, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, uh, be cast into the sea and it will be moved. That's in Matthew Matthew 17, verse 20. In the passage, it's parallel to that in Mark. And the disciples are asking why they couldn't cast the demon out. Jesus said, this kind comes out by anything. This kind is, cannot come out by anything by prayer. I apologize for this video. Cannot come out by anything but prayer. Faith and prayer can make you, it can make me fruitful branches in the vine. There's nothing you have to say, hurtful. There's nothing to do. That's not uncovering some truth no one's discovered. in those subjects, in those areas of your life. Because he said, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will say to the Son, be cast in the sea, and it will be done for you. Here he says, um, here he says those words in verse 21. Through the help of one of the books I read, I was reminded of Zechariah 4. Zechariah 4, there Zerubbabel is trying to build God's house. And as he is seeking to build God's house, this is a statement made in verse 7. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plane. In Zechariah 4, in verse 7, the context is that 
world is going to build God's house. He's going to build God's temple. And there is no mountain big enough to stand in his way. Because he's going to perform this by God's power and by God's grace. In verse 6, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. This is going to be by God's power, by God's strength. All the mountains are going to be removed and this house was going to be built. And in spite of the fact that the enemies in the land tried to shut up opposition, in spite of that fact, all those mountains were removed and that temple was built. Now, there is a certain sense in which the temple is the mountain that stands against God's people and God's Son. He has been rejected in the temple. He has been rejected and will continue to be rejected by the temple authorities. As the apostles take the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus and they begin preaching that message and proclaiming that word in the book of Acts, it doesn't take very long before they bump up against temple authorities and the Sadducees are dismayed because the disciples are preaching Jesus and the resurrection they throw them in prison they stand trial before those very groups for which Jesus stood trial when they continue to preach when they continue to teach they are taken and they are beaten with stripes and they leave rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name But the reason why in the book of Acts that the apostles continue to persevere, they continue to turn the world upside down, is because of their faith and their prayers. When the early church in Acts 1, they were, the Pentecost had not come yet. They were gathered together praying. The church began in a spirit of prayer. When 3,000 are baptized on the day of Pentecost and more are coming in every day, they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Peter and John went up to the temple at the hour of prayer. And when they were persecuted by the authorities, when they were threatened not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus, they gathered together with their brethren in Acts 4, in verses 23 through 31, and they prayed. And the disciples said, It is not reason that we should leave the Word of God to serve tables, but we will devote ourselves to prayer. And to the ministry of the Word. I would suggest to you that these disciples, who alone seem to witness 
this fig tree. These disciples bore much fruit. And anyone here today is evidence of the fruit they bore. They bore much fruit through their faith and through their prayer. And if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what's done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken and cast into the sea, it will happen. Let us pray. O Lord our God, before you all men for you are the one who made us and you are the one in whose hand is our life breath and our Lord, we see in these words the importance of bearing fruit. May our lives demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit and not the works of the flesh. Help us, Lord, to bear fruit. To bear fruit in the sense of bringing others to you and pointing others to you. And help us, Lord, to pay attention to the value of faith, to the value of prayer. May we have faith and not that. And may we seek your face and depend upon you in prayer. For truly, such faith and such prayer has moved mountains. Forgive us for our failures. Help us to be to learn from these words. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you believe that Jesus died and rose again, and you're willing to build your life on that, if you have faith and do not doubt, and are willing to turn from your sins in repentance and to be baptized with Christ for remission of sins, we invite you to come as we stand.